Romans chapter 1. I want to tell you that this sermon just got more interesting in the last five minutes. Because as I walked out here, apparently some of my notes stayed in the back part of the church there. So we're going to wing it from the start. Is that all right? You don't know. That's just, uh, you'll tell me after, right? <laughs> Romans chapter 1. We started our series on Romans last week. And I told you I'd never preached through the whole book of Romans. And part of that is because it can be intimidating. Part of that's because it, it is, it's got lots of kind of controversial issues. Part of that's because of a sermon like today that can honestly be a, bit of a little bit of a downer as you're getting into it, as Paul is building his argument. But today, you know, last week we talked about the man and the message and the mission of Romans, who it is that wrote it, what he was intending to do, and what he was wanting to say. Well, today we're going to launch into the argument, and here's what I want you to know. This argument is considered not only by theological, people that study God, people that study Scripture, people that study the literature that God used to communicate His love and truth to us, not just by those people do they consider it a great argument, but also by people who study and understand how to present an argument. The book of Romans is considered a great argument. In fact... For the first 100 years of his existence, the law school at Harvard required all first-year students to study the book of Romans for the argument it makes. How to craft an argument is important for a lawyer because they don't want to lose. I have a lawyer in my family. He never wanted to lose an argument, ever. A lot of you in your families have amateur lawyers. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Right? And forming an argument, feeling how you're going to do that, working through that is important. And what happens here is Paul does that in such a masterful way that people study it. And the whole point of his argument is the last verse we really talked about last week. And that comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 16 that says, I think it's the next one up on the screen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So what Paul is saying here is that the important part that he wants to give to these Roman church, to those that are a part of the Roman church, is that our lives are centered around understanding the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because that is the power to save us. It is the power to give us the strength to live. It is the power to allow us to live out our faith in Him. In order to convince us of the importance of the gospel, He has to first tell us why we need it. He has to first show us that it is necessary for the gospel to be there and that there is no other way for us to find salvation other than Jesus. And so he begins his argument starting in literally the verse after that. In verse 18 convincing us of how lost we are. And he wants us to know that we have a problem. Look at verse 18. For I am not ashamed 
Oh, excuse me, verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and all unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. He starts out by saying, listen, the reason we need the gospel, the reason that it is power is because we have this issue of sin in our lives. And he says it in two ways. He says that we all have been infiltrated against with godlessness and unrighteousness. What that really amounts to is that we have a problem in our vertical relationship to God. Godlessness means that we have a bad understanding and bad actions towards our God. And as a result, the relationship between us and God is broken and we are responsible for that. But not only that, he says godlessness and unrighteousness and that unrighteousness is the horizontal element that not only is our relationship with God broken, but our relationship with each other is broken. And as a result, we are people who have broken relationships and broken lives because of the choices that we have made. And the picture he gives there is that we are people that know this, that we have this understanding and that we are understanding of what what is going on, that there is a God, that he has a standard. We know that, but that we are trying to suppress that. The, The word picture literally is to press that down until it is buried. That we don't want to know that that is reality. The summer, I told you a few weeks ago, my family and I went to Washington, D.C. And part of our trip to D.C. is that we went to the Holocaust Museum. I don't know if you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum, but it is a shattering experience. I read afterwards about one of the Camps, in fact, the first camp that they freed in Ordruff. And as they were coming to the camp, the the Nazis were trying to hide any evidence that the camp was there. But the Allied forces arrived too quickly and they began to run them off and just were struck with the horror. General Patton came the next day and it says that immediately upon arriving and seeing it, he Threw up. He went and got the mayor and his wife and brought them and said, how did you let this happen? And they didn't respond. And then Patton and the officers made the mayor and any able-bodied men of the community dig all of the graves for the bodies that they found. When that work was done a couple of days later, the mayor and his wife took their own lives. And they left a note, and all the note says is, we didn't know, but we knew. Paul says, everyone inside, and we can suppress it and we can push it down, but it's like a beach ball trying to be held under the water. It keeps surfacing. And because of that, there are no excuses for us. It says here in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. 
as a result, people are without, without excuse. Sometimes you hear people say, well, what about those that don't get a full understanding of, of Jesus? Or what about those that have never heard before? The reality of Scripture is that every single one of us that have ever lived have enough evidence for us to understand that there is a God that we must seek out. There are all kinds of arguments for this, how we know that there is a God. Um, and We won't spend a lot of time on this, but there's the cosmological argument, the, the idea of, well, there has to be a God because there has to be something that made what we have seen. Like, why is there something instead of nothing? And people will say, well, just go back to the Big Bang. Well, but there had to be something before the Big Bang in order for there to be a Big Bang. And what made the something before the Big Bang if there wasn't there? And, and well, what about, well, there was something. Well, well, what made that something? There had to be something that made the something that made the something for the Big Bang. And you just keep going back farther and you have to say, what is there that ultimately caused everything to be? Then there's the argument that we exist in an environment that is specifically made for us to exist. We've talked about some of these before. Scientists say that life on earth depends on multiple factors that are so precise that if they were even off a hair, they could not exist. They might know what they sometimes call that principle. It's not a very scientific term. It's called the Goldilocks principle. That everything is just right. For instance, the makeup of our atmosphere is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 0.5% argon, 0.03% carbon dioxide. And if you had any of those balances off in the slightest, we could not survive. If CO2 were just a little bit higher, we would choke to death. It would poison us. If the distance from the earth to the sun wasn't just right, if the tilt of the earth wasn't exactly right to 23.5 degrees, if ice wasn't the only substance that its solid form is lighter than its liquid form and it didn't rise, we would have issues with life. In fact, we even have a giant protector in the solar system. That if Jupiter weren't the size it is, we would be inundated with asteroids more frequently than we could handle. Life is just created. I told you a few weeks ago I'm reading or just finished a book called An Immense World. And it's about how animals sense the world around them. And, and some of the most remarkable parts of that is that animals have senses that we don't have and can see things in colors that we don't see, can hear things that we cannot hear. And so, for instance, there are animals that when they see a rainbow, there are colors beyond the rainbow that we can't see because our eyes are limited, but they see the full spectrum. Now, I was listening and he began a long discussion about mantis shrimp. And I was like, what in the world? Why are we doing mantis shrimp? Mantis shrimp are shrimp that they make their part of how they live. By any time they detect motion, they punch whatever's in front of them. Kills it, eats it. That's how it gets its diet. But there's one part of mantis shrimp they couldn't figure out until recently they discovered that, pant- that, that mantis shrimp see in 
circular polarized light. It's the only animal that they have ever found that sees in circular polarized light. And they were like, why in the world does it see that? Nothing in its environment or anywhere we can see emits that or shows that. And then they discovered one thing in its environment does. One creature in its environment gives off circular polarized light. I don't even know what that means, but I just read it. You may want to guess what it is. It's other mantis shrimp, specifically of the opposite sex. And they said, how many millions of years of evolution did it take to get to the point that the creature that emits the light is the only one that can see the light? And I was like, God. And because His invisible attributes are there for all to see, we have no excuse. So we have a problem. We have no excuse for the problem. Nothing works. And then we discover that the way He punishes us, the way He allows us to go down this road, is that He gives us what we want. We have what we desire. Look at what it says. For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Leave that there for just a second. He says, listen, they knew there was a God, but they so wanted to push it down and not let it get to the surface because it required them to acknowledge Him and to follow Him. They kept pushing it down that they did something really crazy. They acted foolish, and things that they could create, they built and then worshipped the things that they created. Or they made images of things that he created, that God created, and said, let's worship those things. If they had known about the mantis shrimp's um, polar vision, they might have made a mantis shrimp idol. But they did birds and animals and reptiles. And then he begins in just a moment to list some of the ways that he has given them over to their own desires. He says, for instance... Therefore, God delivered them over to their desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what had been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. And I guess he knew that if this letter was being written and read into a church that they might not amen that point. So he amended it for himself. Right? For this reason, God delivered them over to their disgraceful passions. And he's going to give a list of things he gave them over to. Before we even read the next part, some of you already jumped ahead. Let me just say that it's important to understand that the list he gives is in no set of importance and they are all equally bad. He says, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. I'm going to say something real quick about that. That's a sermon for another day, a whole other sermon. Okay? 
couple of things that the church needs to realize in our society about the issue of homosexuality. First of all, the Bible does speak to it. There are those out there that say it doesn't. It does. God does care about it. Sometimes I hear, well, why does God care who I love? God knows the number of hairs on your head and knows everything about you and cares about everything about you. Of course he cares. Otherwise, he's not a good God. Third, Scripture makes it clear that homosexual relationships are sin. Fourth, Scripture makes it clear that it's not the worst sin that has ever been committed. And fifth, Scripture makes it clear that the church has a lot to learn of how we treat people that are in sin, no matter what it is. In fact, we're going to talk about some sins here in a minute that if it doesn't hit you, then you need to check where your heart is. Because remember, to whom is this letter written? It's written to Romans. What in Romans? Just the general public of Romans? Church. In fact, it's written to the saints. It's written to the people of God. So he is calling them and saying this to them. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, not only did he give them over to their sexual issues, he also delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they did not do what is not, so they did what is not right. They are filled with unrighteousness and evil and greed and wickedness. They are full of envy and murder and quarrels and deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Man, that's a list, isn't it? And although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. He gives this list for them to see that when we, outside of Christ, live our lives, we are people who are godless. We break our relationship with the Lord. We are unrighteous. We break our relationships with each other. And these are some ways that it happens. And here's what I want to tell you about the church that he was writing to. My guess is when he read this, when the, whoever read this in front of the church, they get a letter from Paul. That's the sermon for the day. Can you imagine the sermon for the day is Romans? Like we got a letter from Paul and they read Romans, right? There probably would have been some people there like, what time is lunch? Are we leaving? Like, no, this is Romans, all right? My guess is all of them would have been nodding their heads. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But half of them would have been nodding their heads with, mm, man, that's where I was. Thank God I'm not there. And the other half would have been, that's where they were. Thank God they're not there. Because you see, one of the interesting things about Romans we didn't mention last week is it was a divided congregation. And the reason Paul wrote this is to unify them in the gospel. Here's why it was divided. Romans was started in a very secular place in Rome. I know, mind-blowing, right? And it was started primarily the first leaders would have been Jewish. In fact, a lot of people, we don't know how it started. A lot of people think that Jews from Pentecost, when the Spirit came down and people were saved, when they went back, they went back to Rome and started a church. And this is the church started from Pentecost when Peter preached. And the Jews were the ones that started it. But as was the case and as God had called them to do, Gentiles and God-fears came to come into the church. And they began to build this church together. And then something significant happened in history in Rome 
Rome, the emperor expelled all the Jews from Rome. Christian or non-Christian, and they left. In fact, Aquila and Priscilla, Paul's co-workers, are probably people that were exiled during that from Rome. And when all the Jewish people left, what Christians are left at the Church of Rome? Gentiles. So then, that emperor dies and they say, Jewish people, you can come on back. And they all come back and they get back to the church like, all right, we're ready to get going again. And the Gentiles are like, wait a minute, we have a church. And the Jewish people are like, yeah, but we're people of the promise. We're the people that were leaders. What what do you mean? And it came back to a different church. And my guess is when they're reading this out, they're hearing Paul and they're like, that's right, that's how those people are. That's how those heathens are. That's how those unchurched people are. And in chapter 2, Paul says, and religion makes it worse. You think you're all right? You're not. In fact, you're worse off because you're religious people. He says... And chapter 2 says, Therefore, every one of you who judge is without excuse. That's those of you that think you've got it all together. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think, any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart. You remember he used that same kind of phrase to talk in the first chapter about what sin had done to us. He says, because of you, religious people, church people. In fact, when you read this, think this specifically written to people that grew up in a church, that were died in the blood in the church, that raised up in the church, that you have a hardened and unrepentant heart that you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And then he says, because we're all in the same boat, for all who sin without the law will perish without the law and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. The idea is that you will perish. And then he says this, kind of to close this argument out. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are superior, be instructed from the law, and be convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in the darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of the knowledge and truth and the law. You then who teach another, don't you teach yourself. He says, and I believe he's quoting what they have said as their argument. Oh, hey, we're the ones that knew God from the beginning. We're the ones that were the covenant people. We were the ones that were convinced from the beginning. We're the ones that's the light for the darkness. And he basically says, in the words of the great philosopher, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. You who claim that, do you look at your own life? He says, you who preach, you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you Rob temples, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So what's going on here with Paul? Paul is saying to both 
those that did not grow up in a Jewish environment and came from heathen cultures that did not know about God that have come to Christ. You desperately needed the gospel of Jesus Christ because you had no hope. And then he looks at those that grew up in the church, went to the church, have gone to Sunday school all their lives, were good people, never drank or smoked or chewed or dated girls that do that checked off all the good things that you were supposed to do, he says, and you need a gospel just as much as anybody else. And the point he makes is that all fall short. Every single one of us is guilty before God. This is how he closes this section out, and then we're done. What then, in verse, he says in chapter 3, are we better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written. This is what Noah read earlier today. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The point he is making there is it doesn't matter where you grew up, how you lived, who your parents were, what church you attended or didn't attend. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life outwardly that looks like you are in need of grace and mercy. The reality is every single one of us needs it. At this church, we know one truth for sure, and that is that all means all. And it says All have turned away. And so if you're here today and you think there's no way I could ever be in a place where God loves me and God saves me and that I'm walking with the Lord because of who I am and what I've done and all that I have as baggage in my life, can I tell you something? God loves you. God sees you. God desires for you to come into a relationship with Him. In fact, we'll get to this next week. So if you're here this week and you heard all the bad news, please come back next week to hear the good news in full. Because the greatest words in Scripture are the words, but God. We couldn't do anything about this, but God did. And what's going to come in just a few verses is the description of what He did for us. And I can give you the cheat sheet, the clues to that, spoil it for you. He sent His only Son, Jesus, to come and to die on our behalf, to die for our sins. Whether you are a churchman or you've never stepped foot in a church before, God loves you and cares for you and His Son was sent for you. And let me say this to most of us in this room that are church, good church people. We must realize that without the grace and the mercy of God in our lives. We are people that are hopeless beyond what we can imagine. And for us to stand in judgment on other people because of what God has done for us, not because what we have done is of the highest order. 
of unrighteousness. Now, I'm not talking about we don't call people to repentance. I'm not talking about we don't call out things in our society that God has clearly said are wrong. What I'm talking is when we treat other people in a way that they are beneath us or below us, that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that list of really bad sins that's in Romans chapter 1, I know that in my life those things have been evident, and I know that in your life those things have been evident at times. I heard a a preacher one time that had someone who had become infamous for his sins in his congregation. And they asked the preacher, are you going to allow him in the church? And he said, yeah. He said, I am. He said, but when he comes in, he's going to have a special section to sit in. I'm going to sit in with all the other idolaters and adulterers and sinners in our church. So open seating anywhere. We are people who have turned our backs on God, that have broken the relationship with Him and others. God in His punishment has given us over to the desires of our hearts. And what that has wrought for us is more distress and depression and hurt. And He did that so that we would come to the end of ourselves and say, we have no hope except for you. And the theme of this entire book is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone. Another way to say that is, for all who believe. First to the Jew and then to the Greek. I would just say that if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior or you're unsure of that, I'd love to have a conversation with you. In just a moment, I'm going to be standing down here. We're going to sing a song. Noah is going to be standing out here. I'd love to have a conversation with you about what that looks like, what that means. If you're here today and and you think, well, I'd like to do that, but I really don't want to walk down in front of everybody, find me after service. Find Noah after service. Find one of our church members after service. Hey, I want to talk about that because... It is the most important thing you'll ever settle in your life, whether Jesus is who He says He is or He's not. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let us look into our own lives and see those places in our lives that still need to be pulled out and destroyed because they are against the God we serve. Let us be a people who are people of confession and repentance. Knowing God has already saved us, but knowing that our relationship is impacted when we let that fester in our soul. And may we be people who seek peace and unity instead of division and gossip and slander and questioning. Let us be a people who understand we are but sinners saved by grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, words cannot express how thankful we are that you saved us. And how unworthy 
our lives are for that gift. But Lord, you deemed us worth it. And so, Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for our salvation. And I pray, Lord, that whatever response people need to make today, that they'll just simply say yes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.